Welcome to Maker Skills, exploring your internal toolkit with PJ, Tanda, and Tom. Welcome back, everyone, for episode 39. We're one episode away from having a midlife crisis. This episode, our skill topic is beautification. I think everybody likes uh, making things pretty, right? That's, I'm not alone on that. Uh, Tom? Hmm. Skill class is beautification. Uh, we're going with the number 10. 10 out of 10. Well, I shouldn't say 10 out of 10. Just 10. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, you could dress up a pig and it doesn't take much skill. But if you really want to make it, you know, make that pig look like Madonna, you, you need a 10 to do that. That's that's not an easy thing to do. And on that note, Tanda, what kind of research did you do on beautification? Um, well, I, uh, oh, man. Um, I looked at the text message a couple minutes ago and, and realized that's a B. And, and so I had done all of my research on, on duty, dutyfication. And, and so if, if you want, I can go ahead and proceed, but I did, I did mine on, on dutyfication. But the most interesting thing I found was, uh, was actually from the Apollo 10 mission, Tanda? Yeah, yeah. What is dutification? Well, I didn't know, but I saw it and I thought, well, I got to come up with something. So I went out and started researching. Y- yeah, what is that? Dutification? Yeah. Well, I, I think my research will explain it. All right, go ahead. Okay, so so the the interesting bit I found was from the Apollo 10 mission. And, and now all of this stuff is, you know, that used to be confidential is released into the public sphere and so there's a whole transcript of the Apollo 10 mission, and obviously, you know, it was a multi-day mission, so I'm not going to read it all, but uh, I, th- I thought I'd just read a little bit from the transcript. And this is, uh, this is Tom Stafford and John Young and Eugene Cernan that were on Apollo 10. And so I'm just going to pick up, uh, you know, like day six, kind of, you know, midway through. And, uh, and, it, and I'm not going to say the names, I'm just going to kind of read it, but uh, it, it goes like this. Oh, who did it? Who did what? What? Who did it? Laughter. Where did that come from? Give me a napkin, quick. There's a turd floating through the air. (laughs) I didn't do it. It ain't one of mine. I don't think it was one of mine. Mine was a little more sticky than that. Throw that away. God almighty. Laughter. What do you see? Nothing. That's enough for me. Yes. Nice going there. No more turds are going to fit in there. Is that waste (laughs) compartment full? No, there's nothing in there. It goes all the way down to the... More laughter. When I got in there, I had to stick my hand in there and... He put it in the bag. He put it in the bag, didn't he? You guys been trying to stick it in there with your fingers? More laughter. Okay, soon as we get contact, Tom, what bothers me about this pump action is, there it goes. Okay, let's, it's this thing. I think it's the pump. It's cycling on and off. And then we get back to kind of normal astronaut stuff, and, uh, and I won't go on, but if you want to read it, the full transcript of Apollo 10 is, is out there, and yes, there were turds loose in the cabin. That's amazing. So that's the best dutification story I could think of. So dutification <laughs> is space turds. 
that's that's, that's yeah they mean. definitely okay. dutified their the cabin of the of the spacecraft <laughs> so <laughs> this is so real i love it i googled it while you were talking and i was reading along with you um tom you're gonna have a hard time following that no i'm not what do you got for research pj i don't know you need to tell what you found first no i went before tanda i always go first it's your turn sidebar tanda yeah we started out with space turds. Now he's trying to convince me that he already went. It's hard to follow space turds. Yeah, I but, know. Uh, I know. Yeah. I, I, I appreciate a little backup on this one. He's trying to weasel right out of it. So I realized the imp- imposition I've, I've put you guys in. but uh, I, I mean, I, I'm not in a position. Tom's in the position. Right. Now, is right. he trying to get out of it or is he just trying to go third? He's trying to give it to me. He's trying to say he already did it. I know he didn't do well, it. Well, maybe we could just come out of the sidebar like you're wrapping up yours and then just throw it back to him. Oh, that's a good idea. All right. All right. All right. Here we go. Let's go back. All right, Tom. And that's the end of my research. All right. What do you got? Oh, so I uh, naturally, you know, I do this every week. I, I looked up beautification superstitions and uh, I got a couple for you. There's only 47, but uh, I'm going to start with... Uh, well, that's not a superstition. Cutting your hair will make it grow faster. I didn't proofread these because I just looked them up while you guys were in a sidebar. I mean, I didn't know you were in a sidebar. Uh, cutting your nails on a Friday or Saturday will bring you bad luck. There's a good one. If your eyebrows meet, you are... <laughs> There's a picture. There's a picture of a guy with a unibrow. If your eyebrows meet, you are destined for riches. I wonder if drawing them to touch counts. Hmm. That's interesting. That's all I got. I'm going to stop there because superstitions are silly. All right. Well, um, ironically enough, I did not do any research on beautification <laughs> superstitions. So thank you for that, Tom, because uh, uh, for some reason, unbeknownst to me, I completely forgot that there could be superstitions for beautification. Oh, you're letting me down. I know. I feel let down. Let myself down. Anyway... I was rambling about trying to find various different search terms to give me the thing that I wanted, and I couldn't find it. So I decided to go deep, not into prehistory, but pretty darn close, about 70 BC. Prehistory is my thing, man. Back off. I know, I know, but I got pretty close. You know, I went back almost 2,000 years. And we come to the ancient Egyptian beauty secrets of Queen Cleopatra. That's right. That's where beauty started in Egypt, because they were very, very beautiful people, you know. So in addition to uh, the mystical powers that were surrounding Cleopatra and all the other things, her beauty was renowned and talked about for many centuries. So I don't know how they got this, but these are some of the beauty secrets that kept Cleopatra looking so hot and sexy. She took a milk bath that was milk from young donkeys mixed with almond oil and fresh honey. That doesn't actually sound to me like it would be a good thing to do. But what do I know? I'm not a queen. So there's that. Then she had a regiment of of grape facials where she would take green grapes and smash them up and then put them all over her face mixed with pulp from honey And she would keep that up for 15 minutes and then take it off and rinse with water. So I'm guessing that uh, the honey was to get it stuck on there and then maybe the grapes had a little bit of an acidic action to, you know, 
make the skin all beautified. Uh, then there was sea salt. Uh, you, you do a sea salt scrub all over your skin, and it's basically like an exfoliator. Keeps everything nice and shiny and soft. Then we have um, apple cider vinegar, um, which is a known tonic, and it promotes uh, blood circulation, keeping the pH of the skin good. So she would also use that for uh, rinsing her face. And then for nail polish and lipstick, she used henna and red ochre. So that's where the red ochre comes from for the paint. And the last thing is you use honey for hair straightening. It's a mixture of honey and castor oil. And that out of, well, in addition to the sea salt, that actually sounds like something you could do. A little bit of castor oil and honey probably would be a good hair treatment. And that's it. Those are the beauty treatments of a queen. That's all I got. You've just entered the dealer's corner where bargains are currency. Prepare yourself. All right, so this week was a bit of a thin week. Uh, Tom and Tanda didn't find anything. I got one thing, and the thing that I got took literally weeks to set up. So there's this guy named Nicholas. He had a vintage Porter Cable dustless takeabout locomotive sander for sale in Tennessee. Uh, it was made from 1941 to 1948, and the list price back then was $149. So that was pretty pricey, according to Popular Mechanics. Wait a minute. It took them from 1941 to 1948 to make a sander? This thing must be amazing. That's why it was so expensive. It was, it was handmade, you know, handmade, all of it. Um, then after that, they just stopped making it. They were like, oh, this this takes way too long to make one sander. Yeah, that's so. ridiculous. I think everything is handmade. Yeah, yeah. So it is a one horsepower, uh, three by 27 belt, weighing 31 pounds. This this thing is a beast. And Matt Brawley over at uh, Victory Vintage Tools found it on Facebook Marketplace and sent me the listing because he knows that I'm looking for locomotive sanders. Uh, side note, I find kind of interesting that it is a 3x27 belt because it is a two-wheel system, but the three-wheeled Craftsman I got a couple weeks ago is also a 3x27 belt. Coincidence mm. or not? So Nicholas wanted 50 bucks, and it was in a rusty old metal toolbox, or not box, but like a machine box, that I couldn't even be sure was original. Uh, it was just, uh, there was no logos on it or anything. And uh, we went back and forth for several days over the idea of shipping it because I'm guessing no one else was contacting him. So I suggested shipping the sander alone to save weight and keep the cost down. And since it weighed 31 pounds, the cheapest price was through UPS and it was 26 bucks shipping. And I told him I really wanted it but 50 bucks was my maximum because I normally pay 10 bucks for these things. And he wanted to know if I could do 60. I said, no. And then he offered me $55 and a box of soup. <laughs> Deal. <laughs> so, take, did you take it? Tell me you took it. Oh man. I, I, I just asked him, I said, I said, box of soup, laughing emojis, question mark. <laughs> And then he didn't even answer that. He just says, "Okay, I'll take 50. <laughs> oh man, I sure. Hope, if you if you haven't got it yet, I sure hope he goes ahead and sends the box of soup. 
anyway, oh, yes. But, but it was this was this was oh my god. So this is going on for over two weeks back and forth with him. So then just to get him to ship it, I paid him. There was no soup. I'll, I'll spoil it for you. There was no soup. Oh, man. But I, I uh-huh. paid him, and then it took him a week to ship it. Because, like, every day he's like, I, I can't make it today. I'll try to get there tomorrow. And then he then tomorrow he, he couldn't do it either. So it took him a week to ship it. And then once he ships it, he sends me a picture of how he shipped it. And it is literally a sander-shaped, cardboard-covered thing that has no packing at all. There's no buffer between the sander and the cardboard. And I'm like, oh my God, this thing is gonna be smashed into a million pieces by the time that I get it. And luckily enough, the thing was built like a tank and nothing was broken. Like a locomotive. Yeah, yeah, it was built like a locomotive. It is, out of all the sanders I have, this is the heaviest one. It is, it is a beast. Uh, this thing, you don't have to put any downward pressure. And one of the coolest things is, so it has the dust port um, on the back, right next to the handle where you hold on to it, next to the rear handle. And, you know, so it's a tube coming straight up out the back, like a, like a locomotive stack, but they have a ring going around the exhaust tube that then has a set of forks that connects to the toggle switch and so on the end with the handle, there's a thumb switch. So you flip it with your thumb and it turns around this exhaust port to flip the toggle switch back and forth on and off, which is really an interesting design choice. You know, they, they could have done it any other way, but that's how they chose it. So that was it, um, 50 bucks, um, which I still consider that a pretty good deal, considering that it cost more to ship it than the guy actually made. And... Um, yeah, that was it. That was all I got. Those things are pretty cool looking. I like them. The ones that are that came right after that, uh, I can't remember the model name, but um, the ones they started making after that, there was a guy here in Pennsylvania that was selling one of those. He wanted ninety five dollars, and I was in the, I was haggling him back and forth, and some other guy said that he would pay full price. I was trying to trade him a bunch of Stanley hand planes, and as far as I know, the guy still hasn't picked up the sander because he's two hours away. So I might still get that one. So we'll we'll <laughs> see. The jury's out. Were those deals hot enough for you? You got a sizzling deal that's burning a hole in your pocket? Send it in. Maybe we'll read it on air. It's time for personal history. Tanda, tell us about your beautification process. Well, usually I... Scrub my skin with a little bit of sea salt, and then uh, I have this mixture of honey and white grapes that I that I put on. And Tanda, Tanda, oh, yeah, not your dutification process, oh. your beautification process. Oh, um, yeah, no, I, you know, most of the time I I think of our topic and I think oh, I don't really have much, and then I think back to some, you know, something I did in my childhood or something, and it triggers, and then I have a whole bunch of things, but I don't. I just, I, I am more of a functionality person. And if I get something working, it's rare that I go back and add any kind of adornments or, or paint or something, unless it's functional. I mean, I'm, I like it when things look great, but to me, something that's functional and, and has nothing extra 
is beautiful. You know, adding adding paint and pinstripes and and things to just make it look really cool. I've never really been one to do that. Now, that being said, I do have the Fireball Tools vice plans. Ooh. And if I make that vice, I think that I'm going to have to powder coat it red and pinstripe it. That's that's required. Just because it feels it feels required. And so that that I may do. Yeah. And that's kind of a beautification project on the on the horizon. And I think that if you make that vice, not only do you have to beautify it, but I think you need to 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 one up, you know, the one he made. You got to do it even you got to go to like the next level like it's got to have like a disco ball on it and maybe some flashing lights, maybe like a little dancing hula girl, you know, just just deck it out total all the way. I have an idea. I think I have an idea. So I'll have to I'll have to try and work it in. But uh yeah, if I make it, you know, there's no way I'm going to outdo his his big vice. This is the the smaller vice that he made when he was doing the vice tests, but Oh, I thought you were doing the giant one. No, I don't have any two and a half, three inch plate that I can afford to just send off to water jet. Ah. This is, this is the small one, but it's his, Man. his design that he made, but I want to put in a fireball dispenser so I can load it up with fireballs. And, and when you like get to the end of travel or something, it, it, it poops out a fireball. That, yeah. Yeah. Just, just to stay with our, our theme. I think that's a good idea. Beautification theme. Maybe, maybe yeah. like a little, little bit of uh you know, like a cigarette lighter with some napalm. Uh, that'll make a fireball. No, 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 no. Like an actual fireball. Like a candy. Oh, the candy. Yeah. yeah. That, that makes more yeah. sense. That makes more sense, yeah. Are, are, you, are you talking about the big ones or the little ones? I don't know. I'll have to buy some and then, uh, and then figure that out ahead of time because I'd hate to make the whole vice and then not be able to get the correct fireball size. That's true. You, you do need to... They're, they're not exactly regular sized either. They're, they're slightly irregular. You can have irregular fireballs and... Just anyway, uh, Tom, hmm. what is your personal history with beautification? Uh, I only have a recent personal history. Uh, I've always made my own shop furniture stuff, and it's usually just been like plywood carcasses. I never made a drawer and never made a door for any of it. It was just a plywood carcass. Uh, exposed plywood edges, all that. And recently, I've actually taken the time to refine a lot of that stuff. If you've seen my Instagram and the things I've made, I made a cart for my, my laser cutter where I did put four drawers in with brass handles and walnut faces and it's really nice. I also made a cart, like a workbench cart thing for all of my Festool stuff and my vac in a, in a spot for my vacuum to live. And that's the same, you know, color scheme. It's this dark gray Rust-Oleum spray paint with these walnut and brass accents and the stuff looks really nice like you could put this stuff in a living room if it was appropriately shaped and sized for something appropriate for a living room but it's in my workshop and the more I did it the more I enjoyed like actually having it at the end I I enjoyed the finished product so much that anything I make now I'm gonna just keep doing that and keep going that extra distance to make it look nice. Um, I think I treat it better. I clean it up more often. And 
I don't know, it just looks nice. I think you should start making furniture like that for your house. And then just use it, like for cutting carrots, you know, get you a miter station for, for cutting carrots and, <laughs> you know, maybe put in a put in a planer, you know, in case you, you know, you want to cut your onions. bread down to size or, or for onions. onions. Yeah, thick yeah, slabs of plain. onions and then you want them yeah. to be all the same size. Yeah. That'd be good. So like, like make like furniture for the house, like make something useful out of my shop. Yeah. Instead of making things for yeah. my shop. Oh, I see right. where you're going there. Yeah. No, that's sorry. I'm sorry. Slope. I'm sorry. I'm totally off. That's, uh, that, that's a slippery slope. Yeah. Mm. No, no. Mm. Stay on track, Tom. Stay, stay on, stay the course. I, that'll cut into my reorganization time. I got to be honest, Tom. Um, I never would have picked that color combination. I don't ever pick gray unless the thing already is gray. But that really comes together nicely with the walnut and the brass. It has this sort of gradient. Like it, it, it's, I never would have thought to, to do that, but the brass is like the highlight and then the walnut is the middle dark and then the, or maybe the gray is the middle. And the walnuts are dark. I don't know. The walnuts, the walnuts, the warmth. Yeah, it's it's got like this sort of three three pointed color scheme that that all blends together nicely. I never would have picked that, but after seeing you do it, I see that it's one of those things. Like you see a lot of stuff that's like uh, red, black, and white. That's a common mm-hmm. theme for like Nike for years was red, black, and white. I think that that is your your go to. Like that's your style. Yeah, I I really like that. I don't like to paint, so spray paint is right up my alley. And that dark gray spray paint is just, it's such a rich color. Like, I'm looking at it now, and I'm trying to talk to my microphone at the same time. But it's such a deep, I don't know, it's just a good shade of gray. It's a great shade of gray. I would never choose gray, but I like, I mean, I, you know, have helped people remodel and stuff. And I'm always like gray. And then I like it. I like it when it's done. Um, Mm -hmm. And like, I've got a whole workbench in my shop. That's gray because it was gray laminate when I moved in that I repurposed Uh, and I like it, but given the choice, I I would rarely choose it. It's kind of odd. Yeah. Part of, I mean, part of the reason that, you know, the majority of this thing is painted gray and just the drawer fronts essentially are walnut because walnuts, expensive so that was you know the walnut is just a it's a substantial accent but it's an accent every time i think of gray i think of industrial that's that's immediately what popped Mm. into my mind is industrial and industrial for the most part is not it's not style it's function it's very very um utilitarian and that's kind of why i stray away from it especially since most of the tools that I pick up are already gray. Like they come out gray and I'm, I'm just, I'm like, I don't want to see it, you know, but I will paint if something is, if I don't care about a thing that I'm going to redo and sell, I will. And it started out as gray. Like I have a 1970s, uh, it's either a 10 inch or 12 inch uh, Rockwell bandsaw. And it's got a fiberglass shell that goes around each side and it is gray. And it will be spray painted gray again, and it will be sold like that because I don't care. It's not a work of art. It is just a tool that I need to redo and sell. Mm-hmm. But getting on to my stuff, pretty sure I've talked about, 
I like to make things look like shop candy, bright and colorful. I, I think that, uh, and I kind of do, uh, I, I like the idea, what you said, Tom, that, you know, you, you treat stuff a little better when it looks nicer. I think that's true. I think if something looks like garbage, you're more likely to treat it like garbage. So mm-hmm. when, when, you know, it's kind of like what Tana was saying last week about like when you have a brand new car, you don't want to do anything to it because it still has that everything is perfect. But then as soon as the first ding hits it, you're like, all right, well, it's time to rip that door off. You know, it's it's kind of the same thing with tools. I think as soon as it gets dropped once and gets messed up, you're like, oh, well, because I get drop it 50 more times. I look for the style and details to be already existing before I beautify something. And I will give you an example that I just posted, I think this week. I picked up those vintage hundred year old barn door hangers at the swap meet a couple months ago. And I just got done painting them blue and gold. And these things are covered from top to bottom in patent dates, place of manufacture, the name, the oil port, like all it's like it's just solid cast in raised lettering. And it looks fantastic. Like all, all I, I feel like all I did was just color it. That's all I did. I just co- I just picked where to put the colors and it just accents everything. So I think that that's really what beautification boils down to is it is the decision-making process as to what it is you want to emphasize. And some people, I, okay, I have been painting vices for several years now. I am in several vice collector groups on Facebook and some people don't paint them and they just like rub them down with boiled linseed oil and the other people will paint them. And I've seen everything from one solid color to three or four colors. But I look at some of the, like how people decide to paint these things when they're trying to make it look nice, like, you know, out of the ordinary. And I immediately, like it just kind of, pops out of my mind there's a few people that do it really well and the rest of them it looks like they're struggling like they just they can't they can't figure out what those key points are which for me is like blindingly obvious like i just i can look at anything and go like it could be solid rust and immediately it's like bam all these things start highlighting like like spotlights and that's how all my stuff uh ends up the way that it does you kind of reminded me of something. Most of my projects that I've made, like ever, I have actually taken apart and salvaged and made new things. And every time I do it, I just I kind of roll my eyes as to how bad I was at everything. And I'm I'm not that doesn't mean I'm good at stuff now. That just means like I have come a long way. Like, everything was pocket holes or, you know what? I had a stage before pocket holes. That's how bad it got. Uh, nothing wrong with pocket holes, by the way. I still use them, but I also use my domino. And I like that tool a lot. That beautification, like, stage, there's a lot of steps bef- between a 2 by 4 chair and, like, Keith Johnson woodworking. Like, the the... There's a lot of phases, a lot of steps, a lot of tools. So wherever you are, it's fine. And I'm not sure there's a moral to our episode, but if there is, maybe it's just take it one step further. Go one step further. I think that there's 
there's a way to do more by only changing a, a few, very few things. And I'll give you an example. Let's say, um, so we go from two by four chair to you make the exact same chair, but instead of two by four, you use walnut or you use cherry. Automatically, now you're in a different class. Even though it's the same design, the wood bumps up the appeal. And then instead of using regular dowels, uh, you can get those pins that have a design in them. I can't remember what those are called, but it's basically like a dowel that you can cut and it's got like a set of shapes in it. Like it could be like checkered or it could be like a bunch of triangles or it could have like a symbol in it. I, there's a guy on Instagram, which I can't remember his name at all, that he makes these pins for knife makers to put in the handles. And I think those are called pins, but the stuff for the woodworkers, um, it's called something else. It's, it's sort of like intarsia. But you can take those and glue those into the chair instead of dowels. Automatically, the class level jumps up again because no one's really doing that. Or just use a contrasting colored dowel. That too. You can have a dark walnut and have maple dowels. And just that, just that contrast will also pop it out. Uh, there's, there's a lot of little things you can do. Like here's something I've not seen anyone do before, but is definitely easy to do. If you were to um, not countersink, but let's say undercut the dowel so that when you put it in, it goes below the surface, all you have to do is come behind it with a colored button and glue that colored button into place. And there's there's really, really ornate buttons. Like there's buttons that look like jewels. Uh, you can get um, like, I mean, when I say buttons, I mean like buttons for a shirt or a coat. And uh, they're very, very inexpensive. You could even use, like, tax for upholstery. Upholstery tax is another good thing, yeah. There's all kinds of things you could do. You just have to think, you know, think of something that you haven't seen other people doing, but you know exists out in the world. Well, sucky darn, I think it's time for one of them old-timey commercial energy loops and stuff. Hello, this is Chet down at Johnson's Hardware. Are you making a lot of woodworking projects that are just coming out way too dull looking? No one's impressed at all your hard work. It looks like you might as well light it on fire. Well, here down at Johnson's Hardware, we have just the thing for you. Introducing Auntie Bertha's Beauty Bits. That's right. It comes in this easy to use shaker bottle. Just take it right over to whatever project you've just got done working on and sprinkle a liberal amount all over that project. These beautiful little rainbow speckled flakes will spice up any project. They're food safe, not edible, and please don't lick the project after using them. They're guaranteed to give you that unicorn look that no one else has. We're having a special this week, two bottles for $5.99 here at Johnson's Hardware. You can contact us at patreon.com forward slash makerskills. What the heck, nabbit? I need to get me one of them. Anyone know what street Patreon is on? I need to go. Okay, it's time for crossbreeding. Tanda, what skill goes well with beautification? I would say design goes well with beautification because I think it just has to be designed in from, from the beginning. It's something you have to think about as you're, as you're designing and building something. I, I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be, but it goes back to what you were saying. If it's built into the design then then it's easy to beautify it 
but it's you know you can't put lipstick on a pig it's it's hard to beautify it's hard to beautify something that isn't designed doesn't have that nice clean design to begin with it's hard hard to start from that point and go forward just for the record um oh shoot google doesn't tell you how many images come back anymore are you going to tell us that you can put lipstick on a pig yeah there's got to be a billion pictures here I think they're all photoshopped. I think you can photoshop lipstick on a pig. Oh, that's just an urban legend, Tanda. You can't actually do that. You can't. But no, no, you can't. It's a some some kind of glitch in Photoshop. But I do agree with you. The design is is a good skill to go with uh, beautification. Tom, are you done looking at pigs? Huh? Yeah, that's what I thought. What skill goes well with beautification, Tom? I'm gonna say finishing. Like finishing as in a stain or an oil or a polyurethane or something like that. Um, The ability to apply a good finish is really key to a lot of projects. I I agree with you, Tom. Uh, If you don't, you don't get that final finish and make it all shiny. uh, It definitely affects the the beautification of any kind of project. That's very, Mm -hmm. very true. As for me, I'm going to say makeup application. Because um, that's definitely a skill. There's an entire industry, you know, with the, uh, you know, movies, TV. So makeup application definitely beautifies people. Otherwise, we'd have a lot of ugly that we don't want to see. You know, I, I actually, there's a section of that where you don't even realize the actors are wearing makeup and like a lot of makeup. Mm-hmm. I think that is a pretty cool skill. Oh, definitely. Definitely. It's that's that's where the artistry is. Right. You should not be able to tell that they are wearing makeup. If you can tell someone has not done their job properly. Right. And I'm I'm not talking about like the lady that's dressed up for a night out. I'm talking about the farmer in dirty overalls has a bunch of makeup on and you don't see it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you if you caught like Jimmy Daresta all the behind the scenes of his TV show that he's been shooting, he's full on in makeup too. Let me tell you something. I mean, any other day he'd look like a drag queen, but for some reason they're making him look good. You know, I think mm-hmm. they like him. Just saying. Or Klingons. I mean, like you see Klingons, and you would think that they're not wearing anything. They look just like a real Klingon. That's true. Even in That's the old true. Star Trek very stuff. Very true. Yeah. That's very true. Yeah. yeah. Well, but you know they're wearing makeup under those lights. I, I got to be honest, um, the old Klingons from the Captain Kirk days, they you could tell they were in makeup. They, they did a bad job. The newer ones, flawless. But the older ones, no, no. They, they look like they were dipped in baked beans. That's probably because they were using human makeup artists who just didn't, didn't know the anatomy. Yeah. Very Reflection true. problems. Oh, I'm sick and tired of all this bullpocket. Well... I didn't think I was going to have to revisit this, but apparently the universe wants me to talk about it. If you remember, several months back, I talked about this hooded blanket that I ordered from this company on my birthday in January, and it took months and months to get it. And then when I got it, it was the wrong blanket. It was supposed to be two tones of blue with gold. And what I got was an orangey gold with black and green. 
and it was not what I ordered. And I went back and forth with them for months trying to get them to realize the error of their ways, which they did not. And they kept trying to say, well, we'll give you 100% store credit. You could buy something else. I'm like, I don't want store credit. I don't trust your company. Okay. I want my money back. And they were like, well, we'll give you 50% back and you can keep the hooded blanket. And I'm like, no, I don't want to keep this. This thing is a piece of garbage. I don't want it. Okay. And finally, in June, they agreed. Well, well let me back up a sec. They told me prior to that, we had a meeting with all the managerial staff and we're going to try to make the blanket the way that you want it. The way, the way I want, it's the way you advertised it. What are you talking about? So they said, it's going to take us a couple of weeks. So a month later, I'm like, okay, where is my blanket? Okay. And they're like, uh, we tried to do it, but we couldn't. C couldn't do what? You All you had to do was change the colors. Okay. The, the design is identical. It's the same design. Just use different ink. Okay. I know you have different ink because you have different products that use those colors. It's not that hard. There's literally thousands of colors to pick from. Uh, well, we couldn't get it to work. Ugh. Okay. So either give me my money back or I'm going to go online and I'm going to tell everyone what your customer service is like and what your products are like. And this is, this is basically what I've been telling them for months. Finally, they agreed. They're like, okay, we will give you your money back. They sent me a return label. I stuck it on the package in like the bag they sent it in and I sent it back to them and then they refunded my money uh, minus the shipping. I lost the shipping. So that was in June, okay? Yesterday, I go to the post office and it says I have a package and I get it and it looks like a big pillow. And I'm like, what the heck is this? I didn't order anything big and fluffy. And then I look on the address label and it's from the same company. I didn't order anything from them. So I'm like, oh, you've got to be kidding. Wait a minute. Did they actually fix their mistake? Did they send me the thing that I bought? And I tear it open and it is the exact same thing I returned to them. <laughs> the same exact ugly black, green, and orangey gold blanket that I want to set on fire now because they didn't charge me for it. This is this. They just sent it to me. I don't know why, but apparently someone's been talking about it for two months because I haven't emailed them since then. So I guess my complaint is why do stupid companies have to be this level of stupid? Like you could have just left me alone. I would have been perfectly fine. You know, I got my money back. I, I'm okay with losing the shipping, but now it's like you're rubbing it in my face. What's why didn't they just return it? Like why couldn't you just return it because of the shipping? It's not their policy to take returns because each of these blankets is custom made to order, which is a bunch of bull. Yeah, that's crazy. Well, that's the that's the business model. You have you have two blankets, and and. You advertise custom made to order and you always ship one of the two blankets and then you just hope that people don't return it. This isn't really a, a complaint so much as it is uh, just one of those things that happens when you order stuff from Amazon. If and, and people, I'm sure there are a few listeners who have done this as well. You put things into your cart thinking maybe you'll buy them. You're kind of pondering them. 
and then either someone else in your family or you don't see them and you place an order and you get all the stuff that was just kind of hanging out in your cart. So that recently happened to me at work and it wasn't too bad, but I had things in my Amazon cart, some books that people had recommended. And then I bought something for work. And because I'm not here at my shop anymore during the day, I just sent them to work. The things that I had bought for work, not realizing that everything else in my Amazon order went to work. And when things arrive, our receiving people open them up and, and make sure everything's in the box and go through everything. So I was just thankful that the books that I ordered were, uh, were benign. But, uh, but I kind of a note to self, um, don't order anything that you'll be teased about, you know, for all eternity that ends up shipping to work. That's awesome. That's so good. More what I came from. All right, it's time for short and sweet. Tom, you got anything to wrap up the show? Nah. All right, Tanda, you got anything <laughs> to wrap up the show? Man, that was my line, Tom. I, I used to I used to do that every every third episode. But uh, no, I just one of the things that uh, these transcripts from NASA.gov are kind of interesting that they've been released now. And so you always hear the sound bites that are that are interesting, but if you're kind of a space nerd like me, it's kind of fun to go back and look through the actual language transcript of the astronauts running into problems, you know, going through these procedures, getting something wrong, cursing about it, you know, blaming, you know, one another, just like humans humans do, because we only hear like just the perfect edited version of it, and so it just makes them seem more human. Uh, do you? Is it called ApolloInRealTime.org? Have you heard of this? I've heard of it, which is like the recordings. This is actually a, you, you can read the transcripts. There, all right, I, I have to find it, but there is a website where this guy compiled every transcript with every audio clip of every Apollo mission, or maybe it's just Apollo 11. I'm not sure if I'm looking at the right thing, but it actually plays live every year the same time that the original mission launched and you can like tune in 24 7 and listen to what oh was going very on. cool yeah no i, I i've cool heard of project. that i've heard of that but i haven't uh, i didn't realize it played i thought it was just something you'd go out on the internet and play which it probably does you, but you yeah you can still you know you can go and research and just like skip around and do stuff but it has it it from what I understood, it has every audio from all of the different stations, like, like the ground control and the astronauts. And you can see and, who's saying what, and yeah, it's like really well put together. Um, I'll have to go check I gotta that out. Find that. Shoot. Yeah. I'm listening to the two of you talk about this, and I'm just like, I have Nodding zero off. interest in it. No, it's just it's like <laughs> I don't want to hear anything. It's not like, obviously, I am not a big enough space nerd to be interested. In, I don't know. It's like the only thing I can can contribute is, and I don't even remember which Apollo mission it was. That's how bad it is. My father was a draftsman during the 60s and 70s, and he designed the communications ship for one of the Apollo missions. And he has it on a TITAC, and he showed it to me. Like he, it was, it's just like a little normal-sized TITAC. He put it under a, a magnifying glass, and it looks like a little city of electronics down there. And he's like, yeah, I, I did this. And I'm like, how did you get that job? He goes, because draftsman was cheaper than an electrical engineer. So they hired me. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. 
And then that was it. Like I don't I don't remember which Apollo mission it was, but it was in that time frame. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah. So that's it. Like that's that's like you could tell how important it is to me. I don't remember which I don't even remember which mission it was, and it's my own dad. I remember when Apollo thirteen came out and telling my father in law at the time, uh, hey, you want to watch Apollo thirteen? It's like really cool. And he just looked at me and went like I watched the real thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, oh, well, yeah, you have you have that. I I wasn't around. Or, well, I was around, but I wasn't uh, wasn't old enough to appreciate it. All right, just to wrap that up, it is ApolloInRealTime.org. And I just clicked on a few things, and it is blowing my freaking mind, the amount of work that went into putting this thing together. And on that note, we're going to move on to not working at all which is my my little short and sweet. The gigantic industrial-sized walk-turner drill press is still in the back of my truck. It, uh, it has not moved because I have, I, up until today, I had not figured out how to actually remove it safely on my own. Uh, I was even considering having my neighbor help me. I have one healthy, young, strapping neighbor that's a little bit younger than me. All the rest of them are older. So... Basically, what I'm going to do is I have a half-inch steel plate that I salvaged from a machinist. I have several of them. They're all drilled with four holes in each corner. And I'm going to attach this plate to the wood beam that is above my garage door opening on the exterior of the garage. But before I do that, I'm going to weld another piece of half-inch plate perpendicular to that so at 90 degree angle and I'm going to drill into the hole in there and then I'm going to put a schedule 70 hook into that because I think that that should be enough for me to put a chain hoist on there and then chain hoist the thing at least enough of a way out of the truck so that I can safely lower it and I kept going back and forth with how how am I like I I had the idea of attaching it to the side of the house, but I'm like, how am I not going to break this beam of wood? That's my thought. Like this thing is big and heavy. I don't want to snap it. And I kept thinking about it and thinking about it. And then I was at my discount store today, and I saw these Schedule 70 hooks, which are massive. It's like almost as big as my hand. And I'm like, oh, that would work. I could do that. So so that's it. That's that's where I started preparing um, all the uh, the parts before uh, I left the shop today. But hopefully I can get it done tomorrow morning and um, actually get that out of the truck because I'm going somewhere on the weekend, which I hopefully will be talking about next week. So there's that. Very cool. That'll be handy. I've had shops where over the garage door, there was some way to lift something out. It was so nice to be able to back in, lift something up, drive out from under it, set it down. Yeah, yeah. So that's the thing. Thank you for listening to this episode of Maker Skills. If you should need more skill information, you can find us on Instagram at maker.skills. You can also email us at makerskillspodcast at gmail.com. You can find me at PJ Galati, son of the junk hunter on Instagram and YouTube. You can find Tanda at Tanda Madison on Instagram. And you can find Tom at Infinite Craftsman on Instagram. We welcome any comments. Please leave us five-star reviews on Apple so that we can make more skill madness come your way. See you next time.
Good evening. This is Walter Walterson. It's time for the freaking fireside filibuster. All right. The subject of this particular segment is the explosion of plant life this year. If you haven't noticed, all of the plants on the planet have been growing at an unusually large rate. And the, the, the easiest example for me is where I've been living in Pennsylvania, there is a boxwood bush that has been out front of my house for many, many years. And it has been, let's say roughly about two feet high, about one foot wide. It is now double that size. It has been the same size for years, and now all of a sudden it's double size. So that was like the first indication that something was happening. However, moving onward, it is now July, which is blueberry season. So the junk hunter has become the blueberry hunter. And over the weekend, from Friday to Sunday, I went out blueberry hunting. Now, normally at the beginning of the season, like an average day for me is like, a quart and a pint. Like that's that's about what I'll pick because that's the amount of berries that are ripe. But it went from Friday, I had four quarts and half a pint. Saturday was five quarts. And then Sunday was six quarts of blueberries, which that's a personal record. I've never picked six quarts of blueberries in one day. And this is the beginning of the season. This is really bizarre. And on top of that, I did not finish going through the field. Like there is a field that I go through out in the forest. I have a starting point and I have an ending point. I only managed to get three quarters of the field done. And then when I woke up on Monday, my my shoulder and all the way down to my arm was like, it felt like bruised. Like I had been picking so many. Uh, I was, <laughs> I hurt myself. So, so, so there's that. I, I don't know. That's uh, that's that's the topic. That's what I I I. It's blueberry madness. Uh, I don't. I really. I talked about getting the chest freezer. I think I'm gonna get somewhere between seventy and a hundred quarts this year. That's what I'm. That's the feeling I'm getting. Oh man, is that is that like seventy to a hundred pounds? Is that about? Is it a little more than that? I don't know what the poundage is. I we measure by quarts. So you, sure. you, you know, it's, I don't know pound wise how that measured out, but, but it's gotta be huh. like probably a couple million blueberries. What do you have to pay for that? I, I don't pay anything. It's in the forest. Oh, you can look up the density of blueberries. If you get the MSDS sheet for blueberries, it'll, it'll have the density yeah. on it. Tom can look that up, but it's, it's sweat equity, Tom. I'm out there for like eight, nine hours a day, pick a blueberries. That's the cost. It's time but no money. What do you think contributed to it? Is it just unseasonably warm or is it uh, more rainfall? Um, there has been other years where more rainfall has produced more berries, but I talked to someone who said something that has me thinking now. They said they thought because of the pandemic and because of the lockdown, less cars had been on the road and there was actually less pollution in the air and just that lesser amount of pollution was enough to boost the plants. I don't know if that's true, but that's the only argument I've heard that halfway makes sense. 
Well, I think less humans could could contribute. Maybe not that, or maybe that, along with a bunch of other things. Maybe wildlife and birds and and things that contribute to the health of the plants were not scared away as much. You know, the wildlife kind of encroached a little bit more. I mean, you see things like you know these shows on Chernobyl and stuff where the the plants and wildlife just very quickly started taking over unoccupied areas. And so maybe it has something to do with it. It's possible. Just fewer fewer people out there scaring off the birds that are pooping on the blueberries. Maybe. Or this conversation's come full circle with dutification again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're mm-hmm. out there dutifying the, the blueberries, and, you know, it's lots of ammonia. That's fertilizer there. It's duty berries. We have a lot of uh, apricots where I grew up this year, and I don't know where good places to go hunting them here are, but we used to have lots of places that we went to pick wild apricots where I grew up. And they only made, you know, maybe one in three or four years. They always seem to come out and get nipped by the early frost. And so when, but when they made, it was just, you know, it was always an eventful year to be out picking, uh, picking apricots and, and we had apples and and uh, we had an acre of grapes um, that we always picked growing up. And that's how I earned my back-to-school money was picking apples and grapes in the fall. So, so huh. on that note, on the apricot note, I, I know very well where the bushes are that I've been picking for years. But for some reason this year, there are now bushes producing berries that have never, ever produced berries before. Like I'm noticing all these new bushes that have been there the entire time. They're very, very old, but there was never berries on them before. And I found at least seven or eight new spots. Hmm. And it's just like, it's... Maybe it's a pollination thing. Maybe maybe human activity was disrupting bees or something that was pollinating the bushes, so they just weren't getting... I don't know, but it's not just the bushes. That's that's the thing. It is it is also like all of the other plants that are not berry plants. I mean, I don't know how it is uh, where you are, Tanda. But I know Tom can can vouch. Up here, the pollen count was fifty times what it was last year. Like it was, there was so much pollen, everything was coated in yellow. Uh, it was like really? I yeah. It was. Did you not have that where you are, Tom? I don't. I don't remember it being that significant. Now, I'm not denying your claim. I'm saying, I, I, I feel like I've seen worse yellowing before, but that could just be where I am. It's definitely locational. It, it is locational, for sure. But I had they they specifically said here on the news that it was measured as being fifty times higher than the previous year. And I remember when I was living in Memphis, Tennessee, it was like that like every year because it's the South and it's hot and it's always tons and tons. Like you'd be driving down the street and there was chunky pollen like hitting your car. So that <laughs> that down there, I was used to it. But up here, like it was so bad this year, I had to start taking uh, antihistamines because I was starting mm. to feel like, like I was sneezing all the time and I was starting to get like that precursor to feeling sick and it was all the pollen i was just getting bombarded 
and uh, it's it's finally calmed down. Tom's rapidly looking up stuff online. It, you know, his eyes are moving back and forth like he's <laughs> like he's recording a scene from a movie of someone reading a book or reading online. Well, and I'm embarrassed because I thought apricots. I thought an apricot was a was a <laughs> a dried peach. I never knew it was its own fruit. <laughs> <laughs> Why would they just call it dried peaches? Dried peaches. Well, why do they call them raisins? Well, have you not had fresh... Raisins, not a fruit. Have you not had fresh, undried... I guess they're raisins. Apricots, then? You've not had... No, the problem problem is I really don't like most fruit. I didn't didn't know... I I mean, I don't know what age. When I was young, I didn't realize for a long time that uh, prunes were dried plums. Right. Yeah. Why don't they call them dried plums? Yeah. PJ? Yeah. I mean, they're just dried apples, know. dried plums. They have a special, well, I mean, raisins. They're, that's a special name for a dried grape. So I guess if you dry something out, you should give it a special name. I'm not a fruit right. master. So dried, a- dried apricots shouldn't be called dried apricots. They should, they should be called. They should have. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Flemwads or something. All that sounds horrible. Right. Yeah. No, don't call them that. But uh, kind of looks like that, though. Yeah. It, Tanda, <laughs> since you you grew up with them, see, I've I've never had a fresh apricot before. They've always been dried. No, me neither. Oh, they're is, they're is, amazing. Is there a pit? Yes. Yeah. So yeah. how how is it like every time I get dried apricots, it looks like I'm getting like a flattened apricot. There's no pit in it. How are they actually like? Are they cutting them in half and it just dries well, they, like that? No, I mean they probably just have like they probably just punch the pit out. I mean, if you were processing oh. them in quantity, you would just have a, you know, you just like punch the pit out. Like, like you see cherries in jars or whatever with the pit punch, punched out of them. There's kind of, it looks like there's a stem to them. And then once they're dried there, the stem rarely ever stays. With, I mean, if the apricot's ripe, you pull it off. Okay. It, the, there's, I mean, obviously they're hanging from a stem, but the stem never comes off with the apricot in my experience if it's ripe. We had a huge tree and, and. You can just grab them. Like sometimes if you have a peach that's not a clean peach and it's like a freestone peach and you can just pull it open and the pit falls out, a ripe apricot will do that almost every time. And you just pull it out, take the pit out, and oh, they're, they're really good. And so we always always picked a bunch and made, made jams and jellies and stuff. And then our grapes were a big – they were Concord grapes. So they weren't wine grapes. They were jam and jelly grapes. And we used to get hundreds and hundreds of bushels of of grapes every year, and so that was a that was a big thing in the fall out harvesting grapes. And our neighbors had fourteen acres of apples, and they would pay us, eh, I think it was a dollar a dollar a bushel or something like that, fifty cents or a dollar a bushel to pick apples, and so that was our back to school money. How long ago was this, Tanda? That doesn't seem like a lot of money. Well, I mean, it doesn't, I mean, we were, we were kids, so it wasn't like they were, you know, paying migrant labor or something. We were just the neighborhood kids, but you can pick a bushel of apples pretty quick. You, you know, you have a, a tall ladder where you can just zip up and down it and reach everything in the tree. And then you have a, a like a canvas bag with a sling on it and you put over your shoulder. Um, so you can just kind of gently let the apples roll down into the canvas bag and then you're just up there, just as fast as you can pick them from the tree, just feeding them into this canvas bag. And then you climb down, and the bottom of the bag's folded over, um, like with a little latch or a rope. 
and you can open up the bottom of the bag, let them out into the bushel basket, and yeah, so it's pretty quick. And then we would have, and then you would, you would go home, and your the cuffs of your pants, your socks, and your shoes were just completely covered in sandburrs. And so then you have another, you know, half hour of picking sandburrs out of your shoelaces and your your pants and your because it just happened in this orchard that there were a lot of sandburrs. And on that note, we're going to close out. People avoid the sandburrs. They're bad. That was the freakiest, fire-sideriest filibuster I've ever heard. I am Walter Walterson. Good night.